And the second reading is from Philippians 1, 27 to 2.11. It's in page 22 in the booklets and page 1,081. Thank you. In the church Bibles. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. And this is from God, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfil my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, uh, my name is James, and uh, welcome to church uh, this morning. Just a word, uh, well done with the renovations. Uh, this is the first week. And a word, if you're a nursing mum, uh, please do not feel any guilt. If your baby cries, you are more than welcome to stay here. It's great having you. Obviously, the cry room is currently under construction. If you're an adult and feel like crying uh, during the sermon, you can, you can leave, though. Um, we have been looking at the book of Philippians, which is a small book in the second half of the Bible. And uh, we come to a a chapter, a section in Philippians, which personally is one of my favorites. Uh, It was preached at uh, our wedding. Uh, It was, I'd love it to be preached at my funeral. And I think no collection of words have changed my life more than what we just read in Philippians. Uh, So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that there are certain times when we read it that are just wow moments, when Uh, What we read is uh, quite shocking, really, in what you've done for us. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, this morning that you would change us for your glory and our good. Amen. Uh, When I look around at the world at the moment, uh, there's sort of one word that sort of captures what I'm feeling. It's the word divided. And when you go from Obama to Trump... In the state of U.S. Congress, where when you've got Brexit in the U.K., uh, closer to home, you've got Q&A every Monday night and people going at it 
at each other. Even social media is very angry, is it not? Very polarized. I don't know if you've experienced it where you've put just an innocent comment out. You know, something like, gee, I love Opal cards. And then all of a sudden, this barrage of, you know, you must be a liberal supporter, you blood-sucking capitalist, hashtag bigot, hashtag, you know, and it just comes. And you're like, where did that come from? You know, I just like the beep, you know, the very divided, very angry. And I feel like our world is just craving out for a bit more love, a bit more peace, a bit more care of the other. But it almost feels naive to want something like that, wishful thinking. Sort of you end up sounding like a Miss Universe winner. You know, I want world peace. But is it naive? It's interesting, the Apostle Paul doesn't think so. He thinks that you can actually get true unity, true love, true care for one another. But the answer how to get there is quite interesting. Verse four, uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. Have a look with me. Here's the answer. Paul thinks how you get to true love, unity. It says in chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to the, his own interests, but also to the interests for others. That, that is a radical statement. Particularly this bit. Consider others more important than yourself. Because from birth, right, where we, we want others to meet our needs. You know, when you're a baby. That, but, but there's something good and right about that, right? But what becomes this natural instinct evolves itself into a selfish, selfishness and sin. Where all of a sudden we're all about me, my rights, my needs, my desires, my thoughts. And our individualistic, our individualistic mantra, isn't it, of our society is consider yourself above others. I'll show you what I mean. You, take, for example, when you're in school and you get to the end of school and they give you a book with all the jobs that you can do. And what do they tell you? They say, find a job that will give your life meaning. Find a job that will satisfy you, give yourself a purpose. Not find a job in which you can help others. Find a job in which you can make this community a better place. Or when you're encouraged to find friendships or, or romantic relationships, right? It's find people who build your self-esteem. Not find people who you can esteem. Or your workplace. It's all about climbing the ladder, getting promoted. Not how can you encourage others to climb the ladder, get them promotions. I was talking to a guy this week who uh, works in Sydney. And there was a guy in his office who uh, was quite a nice guy, you know. He, he'd talk to people and really sit down listen to them. People would share their struggles, how their marriage was going, financial difficulties. And then one day, he turned. And he used all the personal information he had against them to blackmail them. And he crushed them one by one as he climbed the ladder. Now, for some of you, that's the norm in your workplace, right? That's just Monday morning, you know. But and, and an idea of consider others more important than yourself is just radical. And I feel like this radical suggestion of Paul's needs a radical reason. Why would I do that? And his answer is Christmas and it's Easter all wrapped up in one. You might know a lot about Jesus or you might know nothing. 
But Paul gives us a reason in the life of Jesus in about 150 words. In verses 5 to 11. Let's have a look at it. He says this. If you want to consider others more important than yourself, then you need to, verse 5, make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider, consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Now, it could have said, Jesus was God, he was divine, full stop, that's it. I'm up here, you're down here, that's it. But what it's saying there is Jesus did not use the privilege of being divine to himself. He did not cling to what was rightfully his. But, verse 7, he emptied himself. And so begins the great descent of Jesus. He emptied himself by what? By assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Where God the creator becomes one of his creations. That is a huge jump. That's like the boss becoming the coffee boy, or the king becoming the cleaner, or the ruler becoming a slave. Just think about that for a moment, right? Think about Easter. Uh, sorry, think about Christmas, rather. That first Christmas morning where God became a man. God left the comfort of heaven to be born in a food trough in the back streets of Bethlehem. He left being limitless to becoming limited in a body time and space. He left the company of angels for the company of outcasts and rejects. He left the, the perfection to enter into a broken and painful world. That is a huge jump. That's humility. In uh, 2006, I uh, had the privilege of meeting the Queen of England. Um, my dad called me up Oh, sorry, went into my room and said, I'm on the phone. Do you want to meet the Queen of England? I said, yes, yes. So I don't have to think about that one. And so at St. Andrew's Cathedral for the Commonwealth Games uh, in Melbourne, there was a service here in Sydney. And so I had to be prepared to meet the Queen, right? And it's a lot of effort, right? You, you're told to put on white gloves because I had to present a mace to her. I was told to look at her and bow. Uh, don't touch the Queen. Uh, don't put your back to the queen. Uh, if don't put your hand out to shake the queen. You know you got to. She's got to initiate, which is really awkward, right? Because you're sitting there like, is that she? Uh, I, okay, go now. You know, um, and it was great, right? It was great meet, and she even sneezed when I met her, and a bit went on my hand. You know, <laughs> it was great, and it was the, the most best sneeze I've ever seen. It was very royal, but. When you meet, the, you know, she was a lovely lady, right? The Queen of England. But not once in our conversation did she say, now, James, how can I help you? Would you like me to come round, mow the lawn, you know, do a bit of spring cleaning, that kind of thing? She didn't ask me that. Because when you meet royalty, when you meet power and authority, it does not serve you. But when God comes to earth, he comes to serve you. He puts our interests ahead of his own by becoming one of us. It's like when you look at an ant colony, right? With the ants scurrying around. You might think for a moment, oh, gee, what would it be like to be an ant? But no one ever thinks, I want to be an ant for the rest of my life. You know, maybe a dolphin or an eagle or something like that, but not an ant. But yet God looks down and sees us all scattering around and says, you know what? 
I'm going to become one of them forever in Jesus Christ. We cannot begin to imagine what it's like to be equal with God. And likewise, we cannot imagine what it's like for Jesus to go down, 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 down to become one of us. But the descent of Jesus doesn't stop there. It goes further still. In verse 8, we read this. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed his Father, Heavenly Father, by, by dying. But his, his death wasn't a, he died during his sleep or like a hero in battle. It was death by a cross, crucifixion. Uh, Martin Hengel, who's an expert in crucifixion, says this, It is certainly the case that the Roman world was largely unanimous that crucifixion was a horrific, disgusting business. Death on the cross was the penalty for slaves, as everyone knew. As such, it symbolized extreme humiliation, shame, and torture. What he's saying there is, if you die on a cross, it means you're a criminal, right? You've done something wrong. But interestingly, in Philippians, it says the word obedient. There are two words that don't generally go together, criminal and obedience. Because if you obey, you don't get punished, generally. But here they both are. And I think it's a window into why Jesus came, why he died. That his death was a penal death. His death was to restore, to pay back, to fix what was broken. See, Jesus came to pay a debt that none of us could pay, to pay the debt of sin that we owe. And you think about that for a moment, right? If you're you're a skeptic here, Christian or not Christian, just think about this, right? If you were God and you created humans and humans had said to you, stuff you. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to acknowledge you. I don't want to care about you. Nothing. And you were gracious, so you let them live a bit more, you know, gave them things, that kind of thing. But year after year, generation after generation after generation after generation, they kept giving you the finger, kept saying, stuff you. I don't want anything to do with you. What is your natural response? Smite them, destroy them, ignore them, wash your hands. You know what God's response is? To serve you, to love you. To die for you. And from this lowest point of death on a cross, it's from there that Jesus begins to climb. Verse 9 says this, For this reason God God highly exalted him. And what's interesting is this, that Jesus doesn't crown himself, but God the Father crowns him. And then it says, God gave him the name that is above every name. Because at one point when Jesus was on the cross, his name was spat upon, mocked, his reputation shot. But then, Jesus, uh, then God the Father gives him the name, Lord, Ruler. Which means then, in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What what does that mean? It means this. If Jesus is alive, if the resurrection is true, then every single person who's ever existed will give honor and praise to him. The question is, will you do that now willingly or later unwillingly? 
giving what is rightfully his. Now, you're probably thinking, you know what, James? I like the God serving me bit, but I have an issue with this part. You know, I don't mind if he's going to serve me. That's great. But I don't like the idea of him being king of my life. And there's something common about that. There's something naturally, unfortunately, about the human condition where we want to be in charge. We want to be the rulers of our life. C.S. Lewis, uh, who's a Christian author, says something to this end. He says this, In God, you must come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man or woman is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. What he's saying there is is the key is humility. Another word for humility is reality. They're going to say, God, I'm in charge. You'll just say, no, you're not. I'm I'm the boss. And you'll say, no, you're not. Look up. Where God humbles those who promote themselves. And the reality is all of us need Jesus more than we ever dreamed. And the reality is this. God is the boss, right? But he didn't come to this earth saying, I'm the boss, serve me. No, no, no. The boss served us. And then expects us to follow him. I want to just get practical for a moment. Sort of end by, how does this reality that Jesus humbles himself for us, how does that play itself out? If those of you are Christian, how does it, uh, what does that mean practically? I want to look at five areas of what does it mean to have the same attitude of Jesus. The first is uh, in our friendships, right? People around us. The reality is there's going to be people in your life who are different from you. Different political views, different religious views, uh, into different all all sorts of things, right? And the temptation is to either demonize them or to just ignore them. But if you understand that Jesus was humble and put others before himself, then you'll do two things. The first is you'll listen to them. You'll listen to people who are different from you. You'll listen long and you'll listen patiently. And the second thing you'll do is you'll associate with people, care for people who are radically different from you. There was a guy in my school, uh, let's call him John, right? Now John uh, was odd in the sense that he was into odd things and that kind of, um, and no one really wanted to hang out with him. People teased him, right? Except for Mark. Now Mark used to hang out with John. He used to sit with him in class. He used to play with him at lunchtime. Now, I thought, oh, that's because Mark doesn't have any friends. But then I found out Mark did have friends. And I found out Mark was a Christian, and this impacted what he did. Philippians said it impacted what he did. And he did not use his status of, well, I have friends to his own advantage. No, no, no. He humbled himself and hang out and hung out with someone like John. He loved him genuinely, even though he was he didn't have to, reflecting the love that Jesus showed. What about those of you who are married? How does it play itself out those in in our marriages? Uh, if your approach to your spouse is this, I'm gonna love them, I'm gonna be romantic to them, I'm gonna care for them when they start dot dot dot. 
When they start acknowledging the hard work that I do, start caring for me, buy me flowers, stop whining, put the washing in the basket, not next to the basket. You know, the, your love is, if that's your love, it's conditional. It's a bargaining chip. But we're called to love your spouse if you're married. Even when they have not earned it. Now that's hard, right? That's hard. But what will motivate you? What motivates me is this. That Jesus loved me when I was at my worst. When I didn't deserve it in the slightest. That'll motivate you to love your spouse. What about those of you who are parents or grandparents or aunties and uncles? How does this affect the way you care for the children under your care? Let me ask you this. Do you get down on your hands and knees and enter their world like God did for us? Do you care and listen and show interest into their interests, not the interests you want them to be? Uh, I'll tell you what I mean by this. Uh, I like bird watching, right? And you're probably thinking, this guy can't get any cooler, right? Um, but I like bird watching. And uh, I was, uh, I've liked it probably late primary school onwards, right? And uh, my dad would uh, show an interest in it. Now, he couldn't tell the difference between a chicken and a pigeon, right? Didn't like bird watching at all. But because of this, right? Because he got this passage. He would show an interest. He'd take me to the swamps of Richmond at 6 a.m. in the morning. He would ask me about it. He even got a bird book at one point, right? He loved the son, not that he wanted, but that he had. And that had a profound impact on me. It makes me want to love my children, not the children I want, but the children I have, and show an interest into their world. What about your work? How does this affect the, what you do in the 9 to 5 and the Monday to Friday? Uh, you might be around people who are all about climbing the ladder, all about getting a promotion, all about building their portfolio. If you get what Jesus has done for you, then it's going to change your aspirations. You can love people. You can serve people. You can want them to do well, them to succeed. I saw, uh, heard a story about a guy who... Uh, a businessman, top CEO in New York of a big TV channel. And there was a lady who came to their company, and I think it was quite early on, but she did a big blunder, right? Cost a lot of money. And when the board came asking who's responsible, the CEO said, I am. And he took the blame, and he copped it. Now she went to him, confused, and was like, I have been... To a lot of, I've worked for a lot of companies and no one has done anything like that. Why did you do that? And he sort of tried to fob it off and he said, no, no, no. Why did you do that? And he said, a couple of years ago I went to a church. And there I heard about the Jesus who took my sin on himself. Who took the blame for me. And this is who I am now. She looked at him and said, what was the name of that church? And it changed her life. How can you practically put others before yourself this week in your job? And finally, your possessions. How does it affect what the stuff we have? Because in our culture, there's an expectation that things will go from bad to better, right? Dingy apartment, nice apartment, smaller house, bigger house, 
crappy car, great car. That is sort of boring suburb, fancy suburb. You know, that's the trajectory we have. And some of us who are Christian will often say, well, it's not bad to have those things. You know, God wants us to have good things. But can I say this? The heart of that kind of thinking is capitalism, not Christianity. Please don't butter it up. The heart of Christianity is Jesus who gave it all away, who demoted himself, who downsized his accommodation, who decreased in value and status. That's the heart of what Christianity is. Jesus who gave it all away. He didn't cling to what was rightfully his, but he gave it so that others could flourish. Friends, at the end of the day, humility gets God's attention. And the most humble man who ever walked this planet was Jesus Christ. And the question is for you. If you're not a Christian here today, what are you going to do with this Jesus, this servant king? And if you are a Christian, how is the reality, the beautiful reality that Jesus served you and he is Lord of your life, how is that going to play itself out in your life? How are you going to this week, this month, this year, put others above yourself? Consider them more important than you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. How amazing it is that you not only made us, But when we rejected you, that you loved us and you became one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are humble and you call us to follow you, to put others before ourselves, Lord. We ask that by your spirit, that you would make us other person-centered, Jesus-focused in all areas of our life. Amen.